World War I wasn't represented in the randomly selected films we watch on this show for 20 episodes. First film we watched set during the Great War was The African Queen, and we had to break with the random selection model to shoehorn in All Quiet on the Western Front, just in time for the 100th anniversary of the Armistice. The conventional wisdom is that it's a less filmic world war than its successor, but that's kind of a simplistic way of understanding why there are so few films on our list that represent it. I think partly this owes to the fact that the war took place very early in the history of cinema, and perhaps its participants and observers were less likely to use the conventions of film as a mental framework for understanding the stories they had experienced. The flurries of art, theater, and literature that came out of Western Europe after 1918 and before the late 1930s were paradigm-shifting radical explorations of the traumas suffered by and at the hands of those populations. But remember that All Quiet came out in 1930 and was the first talkie to take home an Oscar. This was a medium in its nascence, and by the time it had matured, a new Eurogenic global conflict had come and gone, and was an even bigger trauma to attempt to unpack and understand. It's interesting to think about to what extent today's film is an exploration of World War II rather than World War I. The film, based on a novel from 1935, was released in 1957 and therefore has a very interesting place in the history of our depiction of war. Unlike All Quiet, the film was made during enforcement of the Hayes Code, the regime of prescriptions against depictions of sex, violence, and subversion that predates our contemporary MPAA rating system. The Hayes Code placed severe limits on film's ability to really honestly interrogate the meaning of war. When there's a list of rules in place curtailing the right of a filmmaker to depict, for example, gore, sedition, sympathy for criminals, or profanity, they find themselves confined to a fairly narrow lane. But this film is directed by Kubrick, and he was really willing to push the envelope. So much so that this film was banned on American bases in Europe, it was never screened in France before 1975, and it was censored in several other countries as well because the film is stridently and persuasively anti-military, even more so than it is anti-war. The story starts with an interaction between the French General Brulard and his subordinate General Moreau. Brulard wants Moreau's forces to storm and hold a bit of the German line called the Ant Hill. The men acknowledge that the mission is strategically ill-conceived and bound to result in quite a high loss of life. Moreau is initially resistant to the idea on the grounds that his men are in no condition to defend the anthill, even if by some stroke of luck they could capture it. But when Brulard dangles a promotion as a carrot, ambition takes over and Moreau agrees to undertake the project. Kirk Douglas plays the French Colonel Dax, an effective professional officer under Moreau's command who gets the unhappy news that he will be leading the assault. He and Moreau know that the attack is foolish and doomed to failure, but orders his orders, and Dax puts together a fairly good plan, and we get a spectacular battle scene for his troubles. The camera dollies seemingly for miles through the pitted, barbed-wired battlefield, and the French soldiers run up the hill. But not all of Dax's men answer the call when they're ordered to go over the top, and the assault is rather anemic as a result of the unwillingness of B Company to participate. General Moreau, observing all of this from the safety of his trench, is so infuriated by this act of cowardice that he orders his own artillery to fire on the trenches that the men of B Company are in. 
As the attack fails and as the artillery commander refuses the order to murder French soldiers, it creates a sort of Mexican standoff of insubordination. And Dax is knocked back into the B Company trench by a dead body while attempting to lead a second charge. It's a total failure. While many of the soldiers have died, the egos of the important men at the top have also been bruised, and the rest of the film takes the form of a courtroom drama in which Colonel Dax, formerly a star trial attorney, must defend three of his own men in a court-martial that seeks to execute them as punishment for the cowardice of the entire regiment. The three accused men are there for different reasons. One drew a short straw, one is being swept under the rug by a cowardly superior, and one is there because he's just frankly not that popular. The trial is an excellent piece of cinema with all the drama and intrigue you could want. There are twists and turns and last-minute revelations, but ultimately, the men are convicted. It is this miscarriage of justice, the punishment of innocent men to re relieve generals of a feeling of responsibility for their failures, that is the centerpiece of the film's indictment of the military. That indictment is furthered by scenes following the execution, in which General Boulard, having learned of Moreau's cowardly order to shell B Company during the attack, offers to promote Colonel Dax into Moreau's position. In a very Harrison Ford as Jack Ryan way that personally made me extremely happy, Dax refuses the promotion. The film ends with the men of the regiment enjoying a brief respite from combat before heading back to the trenches listening to a young German woman sing them to tears. This is a film about the frailties of human vanity that would make sense in the context of any war. It's also just a fun and compelling movie to watch, which is not always true with films that are as critical of war and the military as this one is. The generals live in comfort and ignorance of the real concerns of the men in the trenches, and they all play the same game of self-advancement that is paid for with human lives. When Brulard comes to understand that Dax has no interest in that game, he expresses pity. So, we are back in the trenches this week for a film that resoundingly disproves the rule that World War I is less filmic than World War II. If I had the choice between mice and mousers, I think I'd take the mice every time. Today on Friendly Fire, Paths of Glory. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's the last refuge of the scoundrel. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I'm hoping one day that there's a sizzle reel of just all of the fun Ben introductions <laughs> to the show put together, like Daisy Chain together. I think that'd be fun to listen to. Yeah, they're really great little, little yeah. capsule oh. intros. You, you guys are very kind. <laughs> You know, Ben, you do a very good job of of uh, being the uh, being the architecture of this podcast. Adam says a lot about how the only thing he does is designs the rating system for this show. I kind of feel like that's the only thing I do. I guess I also have my little uh, thing that a, a nerd on the internet got distracted by. You do that, well, but Adam also has the uh, that who's your guy, right? Wasn't that Adam's invention? Right. Yeah. 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 And Ben, you, at the end, you always say to the victor, "Go the spoiler alerts," and it's it's an amazing performance week after. It's a high wire act. I I can't believe I pronounce it reliably. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's like your your diction is so incredible. There, it's just like you have a mouse in your mouth every time. <laughs> to the victor, go the spoiler alert. 
Ben and I act as like ornate bookends to John's volume <laughs> of encyclopedias <laughs> volume that exist discount. between both of those things. <laughs> you know, it's funny because on the internet, every once in a while, there will be somebody who thinks that the three of us don't know each other or don't like each other right. or are are legitimately arguing about these movies as though right. any of this matters or that we care at all. <laughs> I feel like those people have never had a real friendship before Maybe. because our friendships, all of my friendships at least, are built on a foundation of, of making fun of each other and yeah. sarcasm. All and four of your friendships yeah. are, you know, including that. Ask w- any <laughs> two of those people, <laughs> <laughs> including my wife, and they'll tell you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, people. I, maybe people don't know our origin story, which that, uh, which is that I gave birth to both of you out of one of my ribs. Uh, oh, I, th- I thought Adam burst fully formed from your forehead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we've known each other. I've known you guys since you were in short pants, right? I mean, you were both. I, I always used to think Adam was younger than he was, and I would say, "Hey, kid, come over here and hold my water," and you would say, "I'm not a kid." I'm 32 years old. And also, <laughs> anything you say, sir. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a this is an auspicious episode, not just because we're reviewing a pretty fantastic Kubrick film, but also because it uh, marks the first year of Friendly Fire episodes that have been released to the public. 52 episodes. Yeah, that's how many weeks are in a year. Wait a minute. We and we all... haven't missed a single week because we started recording episodes seven months before we started releasing them. I was going to say, we almost had that many eps in the can uh, before we <laughs> premiered. Well, it was it was important that we did because that was sort of in the early days of you guys taking your, your uh, Star Trek show on the road. And we would record an episode and then you, you'd be gone for four weeks or at least you'd be incapacitated we do weeks. three shows in topeka yeah you do three three shows and then you'd have to lay on your fainting couches with a wet rag over your foreheads yeah <laughs> at, at how much work you'd done yeah well you, you don't realize how much hummus we consume backstage before each show it's it is really harrowing wasn't there one there was an early tour ben where you decided you were only going to live on hot dogs or something i remember watching <laughs> you on tour going you know every rock band does this like just eat out of the hot case at, at gas stations. Right. And you tried it and you came back, what, 20 pounds heavier and covered with pimples? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do sort of regret how many uh, how many pizza face photos of me exist from uh, people coming and saying hi after the show and wanting to take a picture because I had, I had uh, subsisted entirely on nachos for the prior week. Just exuding grease straight out of your pores. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and specifically cheddar grease. Oh, cheddar grease. Uh, a musician friend of mine that's not you, John. Is because cheddar I, grease? Because I know others. Oh. Gave me, a like, the strongest advice he gave me was, like, look, you're going to want to go to these new cities to you, and you're going to want to eat what made them famous. Do not do that. <laughs> it will destroy you after two weeks, and he was right. Yeah, because you want a Philly cheesesteak, and you want a Boston You want cream all the pie things. Or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Chowda. Yeah. And it's you, all garbage food. Yeah. I'd say that the riskiest thing Adam and I have ever done on tour was uh, belly up to a raw bar in Philadelphia on show day and eat about two pounds each of various raw seafood. Had a great show that night. Did not regret but, uh, you know, That's we a risk. did roll the dice. <laughs> now, you know the tour rules. There are a lot of tour rules. Don't eat uh, don't eat sushi in a state that does not border the ocean. 
Good rule. Unless it's Chicago. You can eat it in Chicago. Yeah. But then it's deep dish sushi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> It's uh, it's got a it's got a piece of tomato and a pickle and uh, <laughs> and jazz pepper or whatever. <laughs> yeah. What is that called? Yeah. Oh, sport pepper. Ja- jazz pepper is a is like a marijuana leaf. Jazz yeah, pepper. It, yeah, <laughs> actually, jazz pepper was a stripper girl I dated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was a, uh, she's actually a cam girl. Yeah. A sex worker. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do, you, do you guys want to get into this into this film? No, I want to hear the rest of the tour rules, oh, and then boy, we can. Boy, we'll have a whole separate podcast on what the tour rules are. Okay, fair enough. Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory. We have not watched a lot of World War One films in this uh, in this series. We've watched The African Queen. We've watched All Quiet on the Western Front. Are those the only two? I think were there, they are. Were there some that were World War One adjacent? Well, that's African, African Queen. Queen. And I guess Aliens, you could make the case. Hmm. Sure. Uh, there aren't that many World War I films, is the thing. I think we've probably talked about it before. It's hard to, it's hard to make a, an, an action movie about such a static conflict. Right, because one battle is not terribly dissimilar from another battle in right. World War One. It's like, over the top. Okay, and then here they come. All right, here we go back. And now disillusionment. <laughs> and now disease. There is no such thing as shell shock. So this is a, as much a courtroom drama as it is a a war film, but it is both, for sure. I, I really enjoyed this movie, but there are, um, from the standpoint of like uh, operating as a movie, it's kind of five or six different vignettes that are connected but don't don't necessarily feel like any one of them fills the mind as a complete i mean i found each section like a little bit i i I would get engaged in it like okay we're this is a war movie we're watching a battle scene oh it's not actually it's a courtroom drama okay let's get into a court oh it's actually not it's a political intrigue oh huh it's more of a you know like each each step of the way it kind of transitioned into a different film in a way that, that by the end I wasn't, I wasn't a hundred percent sure what I had just watched. But honestly, 10 minutes before the end of the movie, I was not sure whether the movie wasn't going to be another hour. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You know, it's actually pretty, it's a pretty tight little film. It's I think an yeah. hour and 25 minutes or something like that. It was really compact and it, and it, it which it, is not something that Kubrick is known for. No, if it now, if it had gone another hour and he had put five more kind of similar vignettes in it, I I would have kept watching. I was there were some takes that lasted longer than this film. I'm sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he famously uh, he pissed off a bunch of the actors with with this with his ways. I mean, ways that made him famous toward the end of his career were major irritants in the beginning of his career. It didn't seem like in what I read that Kirk Douglas was one of the people who were primarily irritated. This was a uh, Aldolf Menjou uh-huh. issue because oh, he's primarily. an actor that were, that originally like worked in the in silent movies. Ben, could I just tag you in for all of the French pronunciations, including the pronunciation <laughs> of the word pronunciation? <laughs> pronunciation. Yeah. Aldolf. Al- Aldolf Menjou. One of the stories that Kirk Douglas tells about uh, the argument between 
Kubrick and Mijot. Mijot. Wow. I love it. Was that <laughs> was that he flew off the handle at Kubrick, telling him he didn't know anything about directing actors, like had his five minutes of stomping and yelling before finally like seeing Kubrick's crossed arms and like lowered eyebrows, finally like became docile again and then yeah. did five more takes. Right. He had his Christian Bale meltdown, but yeah. nobody was rolling on, on it on their iPhone on set to then release <laughs> online. <laughs> He's great in this movie, by the way. Like as 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 great as Kirk Douglas was and is, like I feel like this actor kinda steals the show. Monjou. Monjou. You know, he was in his time known as the best dressed man in America and for 10 years was voted America's best dressed man until his name became synonymous with someone with a, with a, like an incredible uh, wardrobe. So much so that long after he died, you would still hear references to him. Somebody would say, nice suit. And like he, he appears as a reference in MASH where someone says, you know, oh, you look great today. And Hawkeye says, yeah, you're a real Adolphe Monjou. <laughs> that is interesting to me because, like, he does not have a Cary Grant-style body. Like, he is, he is, I think, the shortest person, the, the shortest primary character in this film, so I wouldn't have expected him to, to be given that kind of rakish uh, style credibility. Right, he, he isn't the inverted triangle. Yeah. No, not at all. He well, doesn't have the the broad shoulders and ripped physique of a Kirk Douglas in 1957. <laughs> it's kind of easy to forget that he looked this way because right now he looks like kind of a deflated Rod Stewart. <laughs> he is built like a fire plug, but I think maybe that's partly um, partly why he was a style icon, I guess, because his clothes. His clothes fit him so well and were yeah. so elegant. He wrote an autobiography, and it's called It Took Seven Tailors. That's a great title. It's for his autobiography. I think that's what it's called. Maybe It Took Nine Tailors, something like that. It took His tailor wrote another tailors. autobiography <laughs> called uh, Does It Hang Left or Right? <laughs> but yeah, he's a, a famous American, and references to him, of course, would pass all of us by. Yeah. If you're watching an old you're watching an old show and like he's in the Godfather as a reference. Um, Whoa. He's, uh, he's like, he shows up all the time as a thing that, at, that then you would say just like, Oh, he's a real George Clooney or whatever. But wow. This guy, he was the Clooney of his time. Maybe not the Clooney of his time. Is George Clooney the best dressed man in America? I mean, he's not pretty good. In totality, like you've got style icon uh, and pop culture popularity, in a way that seems kind of comparable. What, what's what's additionally funny, and I hate to stay on this, mm -hmm. but his particular mustache, the style of his mustache, became another reference, like a a, a cultural reference in Eastern Europe as an example, because he was politically conservative in, um, in American politics. He was just like a, like an old, old school Republican mm -hmm. publicly. So, and so in Eastern Europe, his mustache became a stand in, in Eastern European film for a, a Western imperialist. Wow. And so all you had to do was put 
his style of mustache on a character and all all people understood it to be that this guy was this actor would be now uh, the imperialist character the capitalist pig so much so that that style of mustache in germany is still called a monjou wow <laughs> that's good trivia yeah sorry i'm just throwing all this trivia about him but he's he was fascinating in this movie and like a fascinating it's crazy to watch this movie and think this little sort of fire plug of an actor who does such a good job here but just seems like a character actor actually was like but he made like this incredibly outsized impact on the culture relative to like what i mean certainly compared to what we know about him now yeah like having just watched this movie last night i wasn't watching it going like man look at this icon like it didn't leap off the screen to me that this guy was i mean i I thought he was uh great in this part but it didn't uh, it was not evident to me that he was remarkable in any other way. And we don't, I, I, I guess people don't become, I guess, I, well, that's not, that's not easy to say, right? You could still talk about something that is very Kanye and have that start to represent other things beyond just Kanye. Right. I don't know if there's a mustache called the Kanye yet. But. <laughs> I think we all have an idea of what that could look like. <laughs> oh no. His character, uh the the major general does something in this film that I thought was really incredible, which was in the beginning I felt like he was an ally to the Kirk Douglas character and was eventually going to save him. But time and time again he is given that opportunity to be as heroic and good as the Dax character and every time it's a double cross. It's a double cross. And and Bec- a, like a smooth one. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you talk, John, about how this movie has kind of five or six vignettes that link together to, to form a whole. And I think that each one has the kind of ethos of the film baked right into it. And that first scene between uh, his character... Uh, Brulard. General Brulard and uh, General Miro is... Uh, you know, it's 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 in there right away. You know, he's he's uh, he's totally playing Moreau like a like a fiddle in this scene where he's like, oh, you know, like there's an, another aspect to this uh, suicide mission that I probably shouldn't tell you, but uh, I'd feel bad not telling you that your uh, your third star is uh, resting on this, and uh, you could probably get it if you do pretty good tomorrow. You yeah, know, like and the, he does that over and over, right? Just um, kind of with a with a smile on his face, he he does some real Machiavellian politics on everybody. And you're right, Adam. He he feels like oh he's he's my proxy here. Like yeah, I love this character. And then every time, you're like what what? You're like pregnant with the feeling that eventually he's going to come around and redeem himself because he has so many opportunities to do so. And that's kind of the tragedy of the film and the message of it is that like bad people are bad because they have those opportunities and they don't take them. Well, he's also where he is because of that, of that quality in him. You know, he is, he is playing the game. He is, he is a, a climber, you know, he wraps himself in power and finds more power to wrap himself with. And 
you know, the Kirk Douglas character is not motivated by the same things as him. And that's why he, like, it's as much that Brulard misunderstands what is driving Colonel Dax as the other way around, you know? Yeah. They both think that they uh, see a kindred spirit in each other and they're wrong. Right, because Dax does feel like he's got an ally there. But also, Brulard thinks that Dax is playing the same game he is. That's so effective for a viewer, too, because that's how I felt initially. Yeah, when that when that reveal happens, uh, it's doubly tragic for that reason. That yeah. we all believed that we were going, and and yet it was it was laid bare in that first scene that yeah we knew what this guy was from the beginning, but we wanted to believe he was something better than that. Right, and it's the story of World War One. I. I mean, this was a war that the generals kept making these big plays, kept sending men on suicide missions, kept looking at it, looking at the war on paper and saying, well, we'll just break through here. And they'd send 50,000 men to their deaths and it would have, it would fail and they would, the generals would suffer no consequences. They're back behind the lines at big fancy parties in Paris and they would go, hmm, well that didn't work. Let's try again. And they, and in the end they suffered no consequences, right? The, the generals of World War One went on to lead their respective countries. Um, their reputations were were hardly ever tarnished, and uh, you know, and they were playing. They were playing this sort of uh, like not even backroom politics, but like like drawing room politics, <laughs> and at the expense of like an entire generation of Europeans. Um, it, it's interesting that they do that while also really paying lip service to the idea that they value human life. I mean, like Brulard in that first scene is literally like within five minutes going from like, like the life of one of my men is more important to me than all of the, all of the medals on my chest. And, uh, he goes like right from that to, all right, let's do the suicide mission so I can get that third star. Looking forward to it. Yeah. When Brulard makes the pitch to Moreau, he says, are your men not up to it? Moreau is like, my men can do anything. My dick is very big. <laughs> with, with no actual thought to, is this, an, is this accomplishable? How many men will this kill? Um, and that's what's, that's what's at the core of the anti-war message seeping out of every scene in this movie. It's crucial that this plan is conceived in a room with paintings and carpets instead of on the battlefield. Yeah. And it's never clear what the objective is other than to just like, it's time for us to take that hill. Yeah. I want to compare it a little bit to All Quiet on the Western Front. It's kind of told from a slightly different vantage point. It's more the the kind of uh, the officers that we concern ourselves with. I mean, we, we get to know three enlisted men, but um, All Quiet is very much told from the perspective of the enlisted, and this is very much told from the perspective of officers. And uh, also, All Quiet is so much more brutal and gory and disgusting than this movie. I mean, the, the trenches don't look nice, but they are, like, pretty swept and... Like when people come in having gotten dirty, it's, uh, you know, it's just kind of mud rubbed into their cheeks. Um, the, the brutality element is so much less present in this film. And yet I think it's 
as compelling a case against war as All Quiet in a lot of ways. Yeah, if we're going to play the game of which film is more disgusting, I would almost say that it's Paths of Glory because it's it's more emotionally disgusting to me than than uh, All Quiet was viscerally disgusting in that way. Like, I felt more affected by the end of this film than that one. And I know we have a rule about not comparing war films, but that is a way... I mean, because there are so few in that World War One sample size, I mean, it's convenient to to compare them in that way. Yeah, and uh, and Colonel Dax says it like he's just he's disgusted to be a member of the human race at the end of the trial because a room full of men are, are like sitting there looking these three soldiers in the eyes, going like, "Yes, we're going to kill you," even though like we haven't actually given any really good reasons for doing it. Uh, that's that's what we have decided to do. Right, we're ignoring five great reasons not to kill you because we just have to kill you. It's The symbolism is yeah. too powerful. Yeah, there's so much more betrayal in this movie. And I think in All Quiet on the Western Front, we don't see that betrayal. It's implied because why are these, why are these men suffering so much? They're just getting thrown back and back again by, by, by people we don't see. Right. But to watch this movie where it's just really on display how um, how unfeeling and calculating the officer class was. And then we go down into the trenches, and although those trenches felt really swept, the, some of those scenes where the camera just makes a long, long journey through a trench system, and we and the men all kind of step back to salute the officers as they walk. Yeah. Um, really. Little, uh, little explosions going off around the edges. <laughs> Yeah, super, super evocative. Really of well done. What that was like, I did. I do. You know, I, I did feel like, as a little ding on Kubrick, the actual, <laughs> and I can't decide in this podcast. We've been doing this. I think a lot. little ding on Kubrick was Aerosmith's uh, seventh studio album. <laughs> <laughs> that was when they were really high and their music wasn't good. <laughs> That's the album that "Falling in Love Is Hard on the Knees" was Ooh. on, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you like the way I hold a mic. Ben pronounces his name Kubrick. Adam, you say Kubrick. Kubrick. Am I wrong? And, well, no. I, I'm, I'm prepared I'm, to be wrong. I keep trying to split the difference between you guys because I don't want to be wrong. So I'm like Kubrick. You're like pronouncing it like it's got an umlaut. Kubrick. So what is it? What? Let's decide. Kubrick. We've all decided that we've all decided on our on our group pronunciation of interrogate. Yeah. But what is our group pronunciation of Kubrick? Kubrick's I think if our listeners names. have an idea, they can use hashtag Kubrick, hashtag Kubrick, hashtag Kubrick, Kubrick, Kubrick. along with the friendly fire Kubrick. hashtag. Oh, uh, well, but what I was saying was the battlefield scene when they're actually when they're actually making their way to the other side. Um, I thought the set was really was really true looking uh, craters and 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 barbed wire. Although again. All quiet on the Western Front. It's very hard to compare how how visceral that those battle scenes were. But yeah. I did not have a very clear geography, uh, like mental and filmic geography of exactly what that no man's land looked like, where they were going, where they stalled, and where they retreated back from. Like all of that, all of that scene felt like he was accomplishing 
these little moments that he needed to accomplish, but I didn't walk away from it fully understanding the distances covered, the problems encountered. If you notice, we never ever see a single German soldier in any of this film. It's entirely French. So we never, we never actually see any hand to hand combat. We don't see Germans at all. And that had to be a conscious decision but it made that it made that combat scene feel a little unreal because um, I never really I mean we're looking we're looking at the ant hill that they're trying to um, surmount through binoculars and it looks like a matte painting of mm-hmm. just some squares. Yeah, it, it looked like a Wes Anderson matte painting. Like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but that was frustrating to me because because I wanted at least those battle scenes to. Because it's, it was such a key element of the movie that the, that the troops really put themselves in harm's way, but from behind the lines, it looked like they hadn't gone far enough or they hadn't tried hard enough. Do you and, not feel like that was a choice? Well, I, but I was, uns- I was unsure why you would make that choice. Hmm. I've seen a few documentaries about the, you know, the U.S.'s wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, shot by videographers that were embedded with actual combat units and you almost never see anybody that looks like the enemy in those and and you know they'll be pinned down in a field or up on a mountain or going through a village or something and like you can hear sometimes when they're being shot at but you can never see anybody that's actually doing shooting oh to uh, to be clear i thought that the fact that we never saw a german was a great choice yeah it was just that we that we also never got a clear sense of the battlefield, and that right. that could have been a choice, but I I don't think it was. I think it just didn't in the editing or in the way that that was set. There, it, it was maybe difficult to get an overview, and it, maybe it required building bigger sets or something. But I yeah. couldn't see. How f- I could just couldn't exactly see it got confusing when when the general was saying shell our own troops and we would see this picture of sort of the backs of their heads through the binoculars. I was like, how far out are they? I feel like that must have been a production constraint. I mean, this was a million dollar film shot on a farm that they dug up to make the trenches. It's a million dollar film where fully three hundred thousand dollars were Kirk Douglas's paycheck. So they paid for Kirk Douglas's like home gym that he had in his <laughs> star wagon. <laughs> but you're right; it did feel like uh, like a lot of the vignettes would have would have functioned on a stage in broad on Broadway, right? There yeah. was a, a static set. They were in a big fancy room, and they were just walking around tables. I liked. I mean, irrespective of the budget constraints. I liked the perspective of this film. I liked only being with one side. I like never getting the God shot from above. It always felt like part of what made the the bunker scene so dynamic to me was being in the bunker and never seeing an artillery shell fall, only the explosion knocking dirt and stuff into the pit. I love that. Yeah, that was I thought cool. it was really well done. And all of those dolly shots through through the bunkers were great. The dolly shot during the the charge awesome it yeah. was incredible yeah. for its focus on kirk douglas especially like there's just a tornado of people dying in this action around and for yeah i don't know how they keep him in center frame 
the entire sequence is a, is really brilliant. Yeah. Well, it's because he's blowing that whistle, so the camera just <laughs> kind of finds that. Yeah. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Timothy Carey, who played uh, Private Feral, the kind of... Logie bearded uh, private that is one of the three that gets selected uh, to be executed for cowardice. Uh, that actor like staged getting kidnapped while they were shooting this film for personal publicity and was like a total asshole on set and got fired before uh, he was done shooting all his scenes. So <laughs> this was this was the actor that cried on his way to the execution. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and the. This battle scene is one of the things that they they had shots of him planned so that they could establish the three characters who are executed in the battle and uh, and they didn't have him anymore. I really got Brad Garrett vibes from him. Did you, Ben? He really uh, had that like hangdog face. Man, I, he looks so much like my uncle did when he was a younger man. Wow. I kind of love that story of how he out Kubricked Kubrick with the, uh, <laughs> the the like last meal scene eating the duck. Did you read about this, John? No. He uh, they made like seventy ducks for this scene because he never ate the duck the same way twice because he was <laughs> fucking with Kubrick about it. And that was one of the that like that's one of the reasons he got fired too. Is he was just like a colossal dick. Wow. <laughs> he does look like Brad Garrett. Yeah. But yeah, what a and 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 a super weird performance of all of the people in the movie. He I wasn't clear what accent he was trying to speak with. Like it seemed it seemed like he had he was he was trying to represent that he was like Yugoslav or something. Not to cut too far forward into the film, but the reason that he is chosen for execution is that he's socially undesirable. That's his description. And I love that one-line description of his character that sort of gives you the reason for the way that he is throughout the film. Like, it's so nonspecific, but it's totally accurate. Yeah, but I, I couldn't figure... Is that does, is he a gypsy? Is he yeah. a Jew? Is he, is he a, a gay? homosexual? Yeah, yeah. Like, you never know. Socially undesirable. He, he loves Duck, though. 
he will eat a lot of duck. Seventy-two ducks he ate. Yeah. <laughs> I just want. I want to see that blooper reel of him eating seventy-two ducks. How like many that ducks oh, could eat in one sitting? I think I could eat four ducks before I tapped out. It's a you could eat four entire ducks. Duck is so good, and they're small. Yeah, but it's they're such bigger an oily than chickens. Meat. It's very thick. It's very uh, filling. So duck. delicious. Yeah. Okay, maybe I'm going to back down from four ducks. Four ducks. I th- duck is so good. Though. Nobody yeah. can eat four ducks. You could, uh, I, I feel like I could eat like two medium rare duck breasts and I'd tap out. Duck legs go down so so easy and fast though. Those are nothing. Yeah. Do, do you enjoy u- unagi at the uh, sushi restaurant? Yeah. Eel? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, one time I went to a sushi restaurant and I was like, just unagi. You know, this was <laughs> this was a long time ago when I was like experimenting with that type of thing, like five chicken fried steaks. But I went, and I, I went, and I was like, I just want a plate. I want a plate of unagi. I don't want just unagi nigiri. I want you to put ri- a bed of rice on a plate and then just put unagi on it, like you would chicken teriyaki. Were they insulted by this request? Well, this was at Hana, which is Seattle's sort of working class sushi yeah. restaurant, yeah. where it's not expensive and where they are. I mean, the sushi chefs there have always been angry at me for anything. And Anytime I go in. They're famous. Like it's Hana where you can have sushi your way. Yeah, you can whatever. You know, they're they're mad if they're just serving it to you their normal way. Right. Your way right away at Hana now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's why I have like five t shirts from Hana because that was the first place I ever ate sushi, like forty years ago. Does your <laughs> does your T shirt say I ate an entire plate? <laughs> I ate five eels at Hana. <laughs> but anyway I went in because you know it's very delicious but but by the end of an entire plate of unagi like i wasn't right for three days it's too much it would be like trying to eat four ducks unagi is a state of total awareness did it ruin you like did you not have unagi again for a long time i didn't want it for a long time yeah Mm. i had to to ease myself back in i'd never want to ruin duck for myself in that way Duck's too good. And I feel like we should cook four ducks for Adam one time and just let's just uh, yeah let's let's uh, see if we can put his money where his mouth is. I would I would ask that you cook it like unagi so that it shrinks down Shrink into like down. into like uh, <laughs> what are those things that you uh, you drop water on and they blow uh, up? You want a puck a yeah. puck of duck? <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Uh-huh. There's there's our next T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have 10 t-shirt ideas that'll never get made because they're too dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Who would wear it? A puck of duck. <laughs> well, one of the, the, the other, I mean, the, the, the main private, or I guess he was the corporal, right? Ralph Meeker. From, he, he appears on the screen pretty early on in the movie. He's, he's one, of the, one of the main characters. And yeah. he's a, he's goes very, out on that night patrol. Yeah, goes out on the night patrol is the only is the or is, is the one that shows like bravery. He's the one with a lot of uh, at stake here. Um, a really appealing actor, and he feels like he's going to be our proxy all the way until the until the um, the firing squad arrives to escort them to their execution. At which point he falls on the ground, like with his face in the straw blubbering I don't want to die I don't want to die and even that like the one character in the movie that we feel like is going to be a tip or a standard sort of war movie hero right even he like 
kind of betrays us for a little while. He pulls it together, but like he he reveals his his vulnerability, but within the within the context of the movie, like it, it it's easy for us now to watch that and be like, yeah, of course that's his humanity. But I think in the language of the movie, that's also meant as a betrayal uh, of of the character. We can't even right. count on him really to keep us keep a stiff upper lip. I I really enjoyed what following that character through the movie because I yeah I wanted him to win at least all the way up to the execution. You're thinking that that there's going to be a stay of execution because of that scene immediately before. One like where, Lieutenant Roger has to has to offer him a blindfold for his execution and lieutenant roger is the person who picked him to be there because you know he knows that corporal paris is braver than him and you know is insubordinate to some extent because of it roger has to kind of swallow his own like his own misdeed in that moment and gets no like there's no catharsis in that moment at all none it's really like like paris doesn't like look at him in the eye and say you know what you did you know he it's, doesn't it's, say i forgive you no but the the performances are so harmonized in that way like like it's roger's performance that that boosts paris's performance in that moment like they work symbiotically to make that moment so awful because yeah. neither one of them carries it completely like one needs the other to yeah. make that profound yeah and then and then Moreau like the the next scene is like so excited because the men died well that's his only reaction to what has happened like he has no no sense of guilt no no shame it's uh he feels like like this is going great for him he's gonna get his promotion maybe in a movie made up of these vignettes and long scenes that march up to the execution is I think it's five whole minutes really which feels long but appropriately long that persistent drum beat on that march is so sickening i watched the scene a couple of times i i thought it was so affecting but like everything works so well to make the viewer feel awful starting with that drum beat and then everyone looking at the people and then the film goes point of view here in a couple of in a couple of places to make you feel as though you are being executed along with them. I thought it was really well done. And then, you know, never center frame, but always sort of off to the side are the Moreau and and Brulard characters, like incidentally there watching this thing that they've made happen. It's really tragic. And I thought, because I had never seen this film up until yesterday, I thought there was a chance that there would be a stay. I thought there was a chance that they would live up until the moments, up until right until the moment where those guns were fired. I thought maybe there's a chance. I did too. Right, because at that point Moreau knows that that this is a jam up. That yeah. Brulard is killing these men to overcompensate for his own moment of cowardice, where he ordered the uh, the artillery to fire on on the sections of trench where the men hadn't gone over the top and yet he does nothing because he sees dax he he feels like dax is like him not not indicting him because he cares about his men but indicting him as a attempt to get his job yeah and he's like so happy to offer dax that job oh yeah uh, he loves it right yeah great play now anyway let's get on killing these guys 
Yeah. You know, this film was notable because the entire score of the film is only on drums. There are no other, there's no swelling violins. There's no, it's all done with drums. I hadn't noticed. The Marseillaise at the beginning and that German lady singing at the end. But yeah, everything else is just snares. Snares. Uh, But that long march scene is so punctuated by the, by the sobbing of Timothy Carey's character. Yeah. Like, it really started to grate, like, intentionally, I think. Like, stop it. Like, this is just agonizing. Pull, I, you know, I, I, I said aloud to the, to the screen, like, pull yourself together, man. <laughs> like, for the love of God, you're making a scene. Fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> this is kind of who's your guy adjacent, but do you think the film is trying to get you to choose which of the three you would you would be? Yeah, in that moment. I mean, I felt like that. Like, how would I approach if I were on my way to the to the firing squad? Like, there's only one way to do it. There's only one way to do it. Which right, is, it's on a stretcher, having yeah. had a, having <laughs> suffered a skull injury. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I mean that'd be. Maybe not so bad, but no, you you put your chin in the air and you say, that's right. You know, that's right, motherfuckers. Um, you definitely don't like beg for your life at that point. It's too late. Now you have to square your shoulders. I don't feel like I could have been shot in that way without giving double middles to... Sure. ...to Moreau. Like the idea that, that they go unregarded by the three that are getting executed I thought was an interesting choice like they stayed for as much as the one character fell apart emotionally they stayed professional it's true I mean they didn't they didn't do I think what what definitely you and I would have done which is stand there and right before they tie our arms just two, just two giant birds yeah. right into the right in everybody's faces like yeah. <laughs> there you go <laughs> Here's where you can put it. Father, get a doctor quick. How about Joe Turkle? Dr. Tyrell himself. So young in this movie. So young, and he plays he plays two of the iconic sort of supporting characters in film, right? He's Dr. Tyrell in Blade Runner, but he's also the bartender in The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> and his face, you know, in all three movies, he his face does so much of the work of developing that character and yet I would I didn't know that the same actor played the role of Tyrell in the bartender let alone that we saw him now as a young guy as the right <laughs> as the guy that really stood up for himself I was shocked when I looked this guy up uh, me too just like what here he is again phenomenal the themes of bravery and cowardice in this movie are probably like the most interesting exploration of those that we've seen yet in a war film because they really like mean different things to different people depending on rank and like the upsides of bravery are not entirely like your ability to gather merit around yourself are not actually linked to your personal bravery and that's a really damning criticism of the like institution of the military right an institution with a reputation of honor like the military as depicted in this film is like almost nihilistic in that you can be brave or you can be a coward actually but it doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is what the brass thinks you are 
Right. And like the I mean like they present the guys they want to present the guys medals in the in the trial to prove that he has like a history of bravery and they're like we don't care if he has a history of bravery. We care about this specific incident. This is the only movie we've ever seen where one of the generals uh, said and 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 multiple like high brass repeated over and over the charge that the entire group of men, an entire um, battalion of men, were all cowards. Like the the contention was that 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 their failure to continue that charge was cowardice on a on a mass scale, and that these men were being executed as examples to um, to the group for of cowardice. Now, what's interesting is at this point in the actual war in 1917, there was a period where the French army, having been sacrificed in this way multiple times, like over the top, and they all charge in and they're all machine gunned and and they limp back to their trenches. The French army actually started to rebel against those commands. And for a period of several months, there was a sort of general strike within the French army. They refused to go over the top. They said they would stay in the trenches. They would defend the trenches against German attacks, but they refused to attack. That's the Frenchest thing that has ever happened in the history it, of France. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And, uh, and the commanding general of the French army at the time was relieved of his job because he couldn't get the men, you know, because he had sacrificed so many men and failed so utterly. And so, and and what's amazing is it's regarded as a kind of a failure of the German war machine that during this period that the French refused to attack, the German intelligence network failed to report it, failed to to grok it. And so during that whole period, the Germans were over there like doing their charges and the French would repel them, but they never fully got that like, you know, the French haven't been attacking much. And what the French army was doing is just wait. America had declared war, but hadn't arrived yet. And their whole stated um, strategy was just like, we're not, go- we're not fighting anymore until the Americans get here. And they just waited it out. They waited until the American army arrived in France and, and joined the fight. And then they were like, all right, well, now that America's here, we'll get back in the game. I mean, it's like a war where not attacking was accomplishing as much as attacking. Right. I mean... The French lost 300,000 men a year in this war for a total of like uh, over a million soldiers in a country that at the time only had 20 million people. It's one of the reasons why American tourists are greeted so warmly in France. Yeah, well, you know, you know what, as as the officers said, we don't care about your medals. What have you done for us lately? (laughs) there's a way that this futility is depicted on screen in a number of ways but one of them that i thought was really really interesting was that like dax in that scene we follow him all the way to the front line on a dolly and then when he realizes that b company isn't showing up to the fight he runs all the way back to get them and he's like what the hell, guys? And B Company's like, our CEO got killed. He's up there. <laughs> and so Dax sticks a whistle in his mouth and he's like, all right, team, we're going to go out and get him. And when he gets to the top of the bunker, a body like sideways is like flung back at him and he falls down the ladder like to be physically prevented from fighting because of dead body 
it was so instructive for their reasons that this was such a futile effort. Like it was, it was less about a machine gun taking people out and more about like the Just guy in front of, of you, yeah, a wall of death. Yeah. Um, one of the most remarkable shots in the film on, is on the, um, is on that night patrol and they're, they're looking, you know, over, over the edge of a crater that they're hunkered down in and seeing a, a building and they're not sure what, what they're looking at. And at some point, a flare goes off and reveals that the ground, the all the entire foreground is littered with dead bodies that you couldn't see when the light angle was angled the way it was. And then suddenly, suddenly that's laid bare. And it is, it's unremarked upon in the movie. It's just, it's just there for you to absorb. And it is horrifying. At first, you're not sure what you're looking at. You're like, who are all these guys? Yeah. Oh, shit. They were there the whole time. It's like a crypt. That you don't... It's like a horror movie trope in that way. Right. It's really well done. Amazing. Like a, a totally astonishing accomplishment of cinematography, especially in this era, to know like like how those how those objects are exposing in the foreground and that and that they will be undistinguishable from dirt. Yeah, and, and after the flare goes away, and you're right, the soldiers at the time, or the soldiers in the film make no... They don't even acknowledge this field of bodies, but as the as the light fades away, then you see, kind of coming out of the dirt, coming out of the dark. There's a hand in the immediate foreground, a dead person's hand, that was always there. We right. just didn't see it before. We it just, just couldn't resolve like, it. Yeah. yeah, it just seemed like debris. That was a that was a I think a fantastic moment in film. There is a that's a great point, Ben, and another part that I really liked was they talk about before the battle scene about what a disadvantage it would be for there not to be any fog or, just, or the weather. It's going to be a sunny day, man. Yeah. And how a sunny day looks in black and white the morning before that raid. I was not expecting to, to be able to detect that visually, but sure as shit, like there's Kirk Douglas with a clean uniform walking through walking through the bunker on that day and and like for a sunny day in black and white to foreshadow something so bad happening I thought was was really deft too. I didn't think I'd be able to tell the difference, but you really can. Yeah. And it's amazing how the light the quality of the light really changes that scene where he's he's you know, we're tracking him down the bunker. All the shadows are really hard because it's bright direct sunlight and then when the battle starts, there's tons of smoke and debris in the air and the light quality changes because it's more diffuse and all the shadows soften and everything becomes hazy. I mean, by the time you're cutting to like the artillery men in the rear, it's it looks like a storm, you know, yeah, that they're in. Yeah. And uh, that's just a subtle, like, that's a continuity thing, really, but it totally yeah. changes your mood while you're watching it. Yeah, it really does. The choice to make this in black and white, do you think that it was a cost choice or a creative choice? I mean, Kubrick was making Kubrick was making <laughs> black and white movies a long time after no one else was, like, you know, like Yeah. Well, and this came out the same year as Bridge Over the River Kwai, just to like give an example of what was being done in color at the same time. Right. I mean, The Wizard of Oz came out in the 30s in color, and this is the late late mid mid to late 50s 
Um, and it's funny to think that in like moviegoers at the time would go to a movie and the fact that it was in color was a thing. The fact that it was in black and white was a different thing. People weren't unaccustomed to seeing black and white. Right. T- TV was in black and white. It's like when you go to a non 3D movie now, like what? <laughs> Why would you even? This isn't in smell-o-vision. Why isn't my chair shaking? Why am I not having mists of water squirted at me? <laughs> Do you think that that was just because it was a it had a million-dollar budget? Because it's very effective in black and white. Yeah, I haven't read anything about that specifically. But Kirk Douglas had, at this point, made many, many color films. You know, it would be interesting from the standpoint of an actor saying, like, I want the money, I, I want the role, but it doesn't matter to me whether it's in black and white or color. Right. Or maybe it's great that it's in black and white, like, thank God. Stanley's like, cool, Kirk, why don't you give back some of the $300,000 we're paying you on this film so that uh, I, can, <laughs> I can work in that direction from a t- production standpoint. He was like, nah, no, black and white, I think it works for me. Yeah. But can you tell me, like, what the differences in exposure... I mean, by the time of Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks was, he chose black and white because it was an anachronistic, and it really was. It was, it was kind of widely regarded as like a weird, a weird choice. Are people going to want to see a black and white movie? But that was not very much, that was not that long after Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. And this, and Dr. Strangelove wasn't that much longer after this. As far as I can tell, it's not something that anybody ever asked Kubrick about. So uh, we don't have any, we don't have any, uh, I mean, and that's just a pretty cursory internet search, but. Well, it says here, even when most film studios had the capability to make color films, the technology's popularity was limited as using the Technicolor process was expensive and cumbersome. Yeah. For many years, it was not possible for films in color to render realistic hues from 1940, oh, I did not know this. Between 1940 and 1966, there was a separate Academy Award for Best Art Direction that was given to black and white movies, along with a different, a separate one for color movies. Huh. Best Art Direction, black and white. No kidding. One of the my favorite things I, I uh, found quoted about this movie reading about it was in uh, 1969 Kirk Douglas said about Passive Glory there's a picture that will always be good years from now I don't have to wait 50 years to know that I know it now I think he's right yeah kind of an amazing take on that it's a pretty widely uh, agreed upon take yeah Uh, Moreau said that that was his favorite film that he that he ever appeared in do you think anybody in like Avengers Infinity War thinks that this isn't a movie I have to wait for history to <laughs> to absolve of its crimes <laughs> oh you know who else said uh, Paths of Glory was his favorite film Joe Turkle who was in Blade Runner yeah and The Shining he was like nah Paths of Glory brah you know who else thought this film was the best war film I've ever made John McCain what yeah really yeah Whoa. Another, uh, while we're just tossing out random bits of trivia, (laughs) uh, I watched a a little uh, 13-minute video of David Simon talking about this movie and how he first encountered it while 
spending like midnight shifts with the murder police in Baltimore uh, when he was working on Homicide and how it's like basically inspired everything he's ever done since then. Really? Yeah. It's pretty amazing how much you see of this movie in The Wire and in like Generation Kill and... Boy, you really do. Like it's true. the fecklessness of a middle management. Yeah. And like how how futile it is if you are a justice oriented person mm-hmm. like Kirk Douglas's character to get anything done when nobody else really cares that much about it. Yeah. This is actually a good a good way to uh, talk about the end of the film, the last scene. Because uh, this pedant just misinterpreted the scene. The best kind of pedant. Just before the German girl sings, the soldiers begin to cheer and whistle enthusiastically. In Europe, unlike the US, whistling is a way of showing displeasure, like booing. So I guess this person that wrote that on IMDb didn't realize that they were whistling at her because she was German and they hated her. You know Good who job, loved Pedant. this actress was Stanley Kubrick, who liked her enough to marry her a year later. Yeah. And that was a strange scene because Kubrick went, went around this group of of 100 actors. And I have to say, from a, stand, from a standpoint of like costume design, mm-hmm. he picked these great-looking people with great-looking mustaches. I mean, you know, a yeah. lot of times you'll see a movie that's, that's set in set 50 years before and the actors just don't look right. Right. They look like modern faces. And we've seen like that Brad in some Pitt. films. Yeah. Um, where it's just like, nobody looked like that then. But he found all these actors that really did look like they could have been in the French army in 1917. That tanky looking guy who ran the firing squad was one of those guys. Yeah. He looked perfect. So real, right? And then, but he, but then the camera goes around and finds every guy that as an actor is capable of water getting their eyes to water. Yeah. And after a while, it just felt like this is some kind of like method acting. Uh, they are, they all have a tack in their shoe and they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all thinking about the, the, the dog they had as a kid and you just see the tears well up in their eyes. And it was like, yeah, it, it was affecting, but past a certain point, it felt like the actor studio. Speaking of method acting, I mean, like it is really remarkable to think about how different the acting is in this from all quiet. Like, what a difference those 27 years or whatever made in terms of what people were doing on screen. Although, my God, the Brooklyn accents. <laughs> I mean, you know, nobody was speaking like this, eh? Yeah. But there was an awful lot of like, hey, 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 I'm, I'm going over the top here. Hey, I'm being French here, all right? Hey, French, Frenchification. <laughs> uh the David Simon thing that I was mentioning, he says that this moment is the only thing that Colonel Dax really accomplishes for his men, which uh, I thought is pretty a pretty brutal assessment. You know, like he he tries and fails to win a battle with them. He tries and fails to defend their lives against this like totally insane court martial, and the only thing he can get them is a couple more minutes, you know, drinking and singing before they have to go back to the front. Were you guys expecting the worst in this scene the way I was? Like, I was expecting the host of the talent show to grab the woman's blouse and just 
fucking tear it from her and that or that worse. didn't and that that didn't happen was one of several moments in the film where my expectations and the reality of what happened were were not aligned yeah or that a bomb was going to yeah. take out the entire room or i mean yeah. so many so many uh, bad things could have happened in that yeah 5 minutes it was a long scene too yeah when it got to courtroom drama moment when it made that transition i like sat up in my chair because I was like, I love a courtroom drama. We now know all the characters. We know the injustice. Yeah. The table is extremely well set at that point. It is. And we've got, and I was ready to see Kirk, uh, Kurt Douglas as the best defense lawyer in France. Um, really like blow us away. And this, and I wanted, I wanted Jack Nicholson in that scene. I wanted this, you know, I wanted Tom Cruise. Yeah. Oh, and also Richard Anderson as the prosecutor who went on, um, I think this may this may be a reference that escapes you guys, but famously, at least for people my age, was Oscar Goldman, who was the guy who ran both Steve Austin as the bionic man and uh, Jamie Summers as the bionic woman uh, through their whole run of late 70s. Six million dollar man, mm-hmm. um, Steve Austin's like handler. It was Oscar Goldman is the character's name in those shows. Yeah, oh. Richard Anderson is the actor. Yeah. But so, so this courtroom scene was set up, and I knew, like, I knew this was going to be so dynamic, and it's such a letdown. You get absolutely zero of that courtroom satisfaction you want. He never get. There's no gotcha moment. No one ever. Um, yeah, there's no point of order that he can like invoke. The trial is decided before it starts, and it is an act of utter futility for Kirk Douglas to st- stand there and argue with any amount of passion because it's not going to make a difference. It's uh, it's the exact sa- like it's baked into every scene how futile his efforts are going to be, and every like any time you get a, a a slight amount of hope, the movie is very like methodical about dashing that. Yeah. I thought the title of the film's relationship to these scenes was pretty telling too as as kind of sarcastic. Like this this film could have been called War is Hell and it would have been more appropriate, but to call it Paths of Glory is such a like little twist of the knife because there are no paths in this film that lead to that. No. But but the courtroom scene in particular, I don't think there is a less satisfying courtroom scene in the history of film where you're just like given yeah. nothing. You you walk away with nothing other yeah. than like a, to despise the entire idea of a court of justice. The novel that this is based on had no title when it was finished and the publisher held a contest to title it. The entry came from a Thomas Gray, the ninth stanza of a Thomas Gray poem called Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. And uh, the final line of that stanza is, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Mm. Deep, yo. (laughs) This film's final scene is Dax walking back into his quarters with the knowledge that, you know, Tomorrow brings another day at the front. What do you think happens to Dax now? I mean, he has that confrontation with Bouillard 
that feels pregnant with punishment. Yeah. But Billiard lets him go. I guess with the knowledge that he's going to die on the battlefield anyway, why go through the administration, the administrative task of of like bringing him up on any sort of insubordination charges? Well, Billiard is also has also demonstrated throughout the film that he never acts directly. Yeah. It's always political. Yeah. And so you just, you feel like, he oh, he's on the bad side now. Dax is on the bad side of the most dangerous character in the film in a way. And it's only a matter of time before he gets, like in a way he probably won't even realize, gets put into harm's way. And that moment of like, of defiance in that scene where he like expresses his disgust with Poulard is, you can almost see it as a mistake, right? Like yeah, right. if he had just embraced what the general was offering him, he at least would be safe. You know, it might not be honorable or just, but at least he'd save his own skin and instead he's going to go forward with an enemy in a high place and no safety of any kind. Well, and also he could have been in a position to protect more men to have been now making strategic decisions. But it's that deal with the devil he's unwilling to make. Bouillard uses a word choice here that I think is so telling. He pities him for his idealism. And that pity is because Dax's idealism is the thing that will not save his life. It's the thing that puts him in harm's way. And Bouillard pities him because he doesn't know enough to to pivot out of that into a choice that will save his life. And Dax tries to turn that on him and says, you know, I pity you that you don't, yeah. that you can't see the difference between this and that or whatever, but it's a failure. Like, Brouillard isn't affected. It's not, we want there to be a coup de grace there at the end. There has to be some positive resolution to this movie. Please let somebody win. And Dax, you know, gives his big presentation and then all of a, then we see him back sort of in the mud and uh, he, and it was a mistake. He blew it, kind of. The one, the word, the, it's like tantalizing re- redemption at each stage of this film, like let someone be redeemed, and in a, in a way, Dax is the one that self sabotages almost more than anyone. Everyone else is getting fucked by somebody. Yeah, Dax is the only one that does it to himself. It's like a catharsis boner that doesn't <laughs> come because, like, he gets this great scene. That's as close as you get to feeling good about any circumstances. Like, finally, Dax is going to flip over a table in this guy's face and, like, really show him. Right. But, like, for that to be, like, as impotent as anything else, as any other choice that he makes or any other action that he takes in the film. In any other movie, at that point, the door would swing open and some military police would arrive. Yeah. And Dax would have, you know turned the tables and Brouillard is put in cuffs like that is and there were there were 50 moments in this movie where you kept waiting for something like that some trope to intervene and save us from the ugh, disillusionment a catharsis boner without any comeuppance <laughs> god I don't see that that's significant for every war film there is its rating system and for Paths of Glory there it's a film really about perspective, I think. The, pers- the lack of perspective that those in power have with the choices that they make and how they affect those that carry out those orders. There's the perspective of those who, who are instead 
the fighters of that war, the the tip of the spear, the people in the bunkers that have to carry out these these feudal decisions made by people that they don't know and who don't care about them. There's an object in the film that I feel like illustrates this perfectly and it is the periscope binoculars that Moreau looks through like Moreau gets all the benefit of being the general that walks through the bunker uh treated as a hero and as a guy who just fucking repeats his rah-rah coach speech to to troop after troop after yeah, he, he just waits till he's out corner. of earshot from the last guy he said the last the same three things to right ready to kill some germans <laughs> yeah He's a guy that, like John mentioned earlier, is fighting this war on paper. And when he gets down into the bunker, the close, the closest that he gets to seeing what his decisions wrought are looking through, the, through those periscope binoculars and seeing where that anthill is, watching the, the order take place, the, order, the feudal order that he's given get carried out through the binoculars of safety, those periscope binoculars are like the thing that keeps him safely detached from the consequences of his actions. And so this film, more than any other film that we've watched, is so full of like the injustice of, of a choice-making class and, and the chattel that have to carry out those choices. It's, it made me feel awful in a way that I had expected more war films to make me feel like very few films make that distinction in this way and that visceral feeling of injustice feels like so many other films that aren't even about war at all like the the choices that those in political power make that have consequences for those that that they will never know or understand the middle managers that that abuse their subordinates in any office around the country like you see these stories over and over again in genres totally separate from a war film and i think it's one of the things that that makes paths of glory so great and so universal in its themes it's a film that lets you down again and again and by the end of the film i fucking loved it i loved it for respecting me as a viewer enough to let me down over and over again and have the confidence in its production value and in its characterizations and in everything involved in this film to to make me love it for all those reasons. I think this is a five periscope film and I'm so glad I saw it for the first time here. Yeah, I'm going to come come right in there with a with another five periscopes and I really agree. I mean, uh w- one of those movies that I would not have seen without this podcast. I uh, would never have, uh, you know, sought it out and watched it. And uh, I think uh, I think it's an important film and it's a great film. And uh, it as a, it really succeeds uh, in its message. I, th- I loved what you said about like having enough respect for the audience to to tell the story that it's telling. I guess the original script had like a happy ending where they win <laughs> and uh and they oh, and no. they like and they worked all their distribution deals with that and then Cube like they changed the end to be what it needed to be yeah. and sent the entire scripts out to all the distributors like and 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 the and the gambit was they wouldn't read it all the way to the end to see 
the the big change and uh, oh they didn't just send the le- the the last page yeah of- yeah they sent the whole script again so uh, I'm so s- glad it turned out that way snuck it past the goalie and uh, I think it's one of the great movies you guys have described it eloquently and and I think we also have seen that I mean subsequent to this it is w- widely regarded as one of the great films um, it has great ratings from from almost everyone universally acclaimed and extremely influential i think the performances in the movie are fantastic i mean all the actors give uh really great characterizations to their um to their roles and although it's in a time in hollywood where where it isn't quite, we're not quite to the point where an actor completely dissolves into their role. There, there are some moments that are pretty actorly, but there is also quite a bit of dissolve into the role. I mean, when you think about Kirk Douglas as Dax, he really is Dax. But as a film watcher, and of course, when you're watching a movie for the first time, a lot depends on where, what state of mind you're in where you're at at that particular moment, how you're going to receive the film. But I felt the hand of Kubrick a little too much. There was there. The director was a little too present in the film for me. I, you know, like I don't like to be taken out of a movie like this. You know, it's a war movie. It's a drama. It's something that I want to, that I also want to dissolve into. And the director kept making himself known. He couldn't keep himself out of it. And that combined with the, the lack of sort of a geog- like Is there an example of that that most illustrates that thought? Um, I think the war scenes are the ones that, you know, that pulled me out, that made me feel like that, that dolly shot, that overhead camera shot was so phenomenal, such a great set piece his greatness as a director took you out of the film well but but that it happened that that great 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 set piece happened at the expense of telling the actual you know telling some important stuff about that moment in the film that we were going to need later right and now we hear like oh one of the actors was impossible to work with and so we didn't get his scenes uh, that would have been some that would have helped later, but there are a lot. You know, this is a great representation of that World War One charge, but we didn't get the strategic perspective that we that at least I needed during the courtroom scenes. I needed it during um, the 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 speeches between the generals about. I mean, it, it was necessary to establish where there could be a legitimate claim of cowardice or where the claim of cowardice was unfounded. We needed to see a different picture um, that we lost because that, because that charge was so effective. So, so I came away from it. I mean, the, the message of the film is brilliantly communicated. The performances are brilliant. The fact that this movie is brave enough to give us nothing to walk away with to resolve the question of like whether war is worth a good goddamn, um, is that, that's all like 
worthy of five binoculars, but I have to ding at one just because my my experience of it as as a as someone now who's watched fifty two war movies <laughs> is that there there were things I felt like that were missing that would have tied necessary elements together for me. I do not feel like that lack of geographic space was intentional. I feel like it was an oversight. And it was it was the hook that the that everything else hung on. So four binoculars and one dirt clod that came from over the top of a trench that you didn't see. Oh, that's mighty that charitable of you, John. <laughs> the dirt clod that came over and hit some soldier on the on the or, or hit the general on the cape that he had to brush off some dirt clod that puts it over four over four binoculars but not up to five i might call that your most controversial rating that you've given yet on this show wow yeah you, th- you think the dirt clod is the thing that made it that, <laughs> that was just that bridge too far i think we've made it a point not to like adjudicate each other's ratings and so yeah, I don't right. want to do that here okay but right. I find your your reason for dinging it a binocular fascinating oh oh I see All because right. you you chose to ding it for a reason that many people would anti-ding it yes it went from six binoculars to four right <laughs> <laughs> most of us are more afraid of getting hurt than of getting killed this is the part of the show where we choose a guy the choice of someone who maybe best displays uh, character at- attributes that resemble our own, or maybe just someone of interest. Who knows? Who knows? They're, they're personal decisions for each of these guys. Ben, who's your guy? Uh, my guy is uh, Private Lejeune. Uh, this is the on the, With night- the most French sounding name. Cool, <laughs> <laughs> Lejeune. Uh, the on the night patrol, uh, he is the one that does the most heroic thing, which is, you know, he's given the order to like go explore the bombed out building that they're looking at uh, over the hill, and then catches a catches a grenade from his lieutenant for his trouble. I pick him as my guy because I think the entire film is kind of baked into that moment. It's a kind of cowardly officer who sends somebody to do something dangerous because he can't be fucked to do it himself and then makes a bad decision that gets the guy killed and then, you know, does everything in his power to cover up for it. Like, you could make a short film that has the same kind of thesis of Paths of Glory about just what happens to private Lejeune. And uh, I, th- I think it's amazing like how how this movie kind of makes its case over and over again. And the DNA of, of the entire film is in so many of these little moments like that. So It never feels preachy, does it? No. I don't think. No, you, got, you get to draw your own conclusion. Yeah. Uh, how about you, John? Who's your guy? Um, my guy... Stanley Kubrick, <laughs> the man who, <laughs> who failed me again, <laughs> failed me one more time. No, my guy is weakling Lieutenant Roger, a character that's threaded throughout this film as a personification of the cowardice that's the whole theme of the movie or the whole theme of the of a side of this movie. He is the coward repeatedly. 
such an unsympathetic character and at no point does he behave in any sympathetic way until that moment at the firing squad yeah where recognizing his complicity his his moral failure he offers that weak apology well he's like the only character that has a moral failure that also reckons with it like perspiring under the the weight of his failure that he'll carry with him the rest of his life and he tries for some redemption and gets bupkis back and it's a it's a heavy moment you don't want to sympathize with him at, at that point and you don't but i think it's i think it's a role brilliantly played and in looking up the actor Wayne Morris i learned that he was in fact a famous hollywood leading man before the war before world war 2 and then in the course of filming i mean he, his star was on the rise in the course of filming a a movie pre-war where he was um where he played a pilot he actually learned to fly and then at the start of world war ii volunteered for the navy became a hellcat fighter pilot and in the course of the war like spent the entire war in the navy not as a not as some actor on a uso tour but like fighting in the pacific he shot down seven zeros sank like three boats and a sub um received four distinguished flying crosses and two air medals in the course of World War II and then came back to Hollywood afterwards and was like, I'm back. And uh, But he was now sort of thrashed looking and Hollywood had moved on without him. And so he he started getting just like supporting man, you know, crap roles. And this appearance in Paths of Glory was sort of his last great hurrah. And he died of a heart attack two years later at the age of 45. So a real Jeez. interesting, a real interesting actor. And I thought a, a really sensitive portrayal of a, a super difficult character. Yeah. He reminded me a lot of David Harbour from Stranger Things. Huh? One of the subtle things this film does is it lets bad people live. Roger's alive at the end of this film. He goes on to invent the thesaurus. That's why he had such a hard time. Uh, well, like when he was apologizing to that guy, he was like, hey, what's the word for uh, apology? You know, this is the kind of humor that might play on Greatest Gen. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> you know, I just want to tell you that, uh, God, what's the word for I'm really sorry? Like one word. Uh, uh, you know, I'm going to get good at this eventually. Keep trying to land this joke. You can just keep... <laughs> I keep ru- I keep running into the pommel horse on the <laughs> nevertheless the he persisted. <laughs> you guys are great. Who's your guy, Adam? Uh, my guy is Private Arnaud. I believed he was going to be my guy early on in that scene before the battle when he's playing Would You Rather with his bunkmate. He's like, "Look, I'm telling you, like." Uh, Getting blown up is the way to go because if you're shot in the butt, like that's that's the one that you're gonna feel like. And they sort of talk about it in a way that I felt very familiar. Like you were like, yeah, the butt is all meat. That's not where, or the, you know, it's way better to get a bullet there. I feel like I would be very preoccupied with the way in which I would die in such a way that I would want to talk about it with someone. And then, like that was a scene that <laughs> that solid that grounded that for me but there's a scene later on in the film we talked earlier in the episode about like 
the ways in which people displayed their emotion at times that were both appropriate and non-appropriate. And this guy punched a priest after getting drunk. He did punch a priest hard. He punched him hard. I believe like his display of emotion here is so pronounced that I believe he would have been double middle fingers guy had he been conscious for his own execution later. Instead, this scene is the proxy for that. It's it's where he he confesses his atheism. He he calls the priest every bad word that you could call someone in a film from the fifties, like and he (laughs) fucking hits him before getting hit himself and then uh fracturing his skull to the degree that he fucking gets tied to his stretcher and then his cheek gets pinched before being shot. Hits the priest, not because the priest did anything, but just be a priest. Yeah. Hits him because religion is is a farce. It's another form of power inflicted on him in that moment, and he's not going to have any of it. And he was the guy who was the luck of the draw guy. He's the guy being executed because he won a shitty lottery. You know, I'm going to revise my rating. I'm going to give it another dirt clod. I'm going to give it four binoculars and two dirt clods just Whoa. for this scene. The <laughs> scene. Second dirt clod. Yeah. Late breaking clod. The whole, the whole idea, the whole idea of executing an unconscious man tied to a stretcher is so it's so fucked. It's up. fucking dada. Yeah. How good that is in terms of a of, of screenwriting. And that scene with the doctor, like bandaging him up and he's like well you know this isn't going to change anything about tomorrow like as long as he can be strapped to a stretcher like good to go guys right (laughs) he's like the doctor from western front who's like you're gonna have to be more specific about amputations and legs because like yeah like i i've watched a thousand guys get executed strapped to a gurney yeah it's incredible He, he basically is saying well let's hope he doesn't die before tomorrow yeah uh, yeah, because, because he won't be, be given the gift of this yeah. state execution. That would be super, super weird. We'd have to find somebody else. How he acted in life was what made him my guy, though. Yeah. What do we have coming up on the next episode of Friendly Fire? Oh, let's get the 100-sided Friendly Fire die that I can never quite... You know, I keep thinking I should get a little corral for it. A velvet bag, like the Crown Royal bag. Well, look, I'm not Joseph Smith. I don't want to look at it in a velvet bag. Sorry, that was a little... (laughs) (laughs) You're a velvet bag. (laughs) You need one of those trays that uh, people that work in offices have on their desks for, like, the documents that they need to review. Hang on, you know, I might have something. Hang on just a second. (laughs) Oh, this is great pod right now. John is going to the bathroom. (laughs) He's disappeared... Behind his bathroom door. Oh, you know where it is. Well, here, I'll use this. And he has produced the lid of a storage container. All right, here we go. A lid with a rim on it, which which I think is crucial. A lid with the rim, and I'm going to set it here level on the table. I have actually a piece of Polish pottery that would work really great for this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, it what was, is it? Uh, is it convex? Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, was, it was meant to be a round bowl, but it's actually 14-sided. Yeah. It uh, does, doesn't work that great because there's always a hole in the bottom of po- Polish yeah, well, pottery. Fuck you yeah. guys. <laughs> it's a bowl, but it, it, it functions as a sieve. <laughs> All right, here we go.
it is kind of tick-tacking back and forth. Okay. Now, wait a minute. Is this a familiar number? We got 24 last time, wasn't that? Because it's 26. Yeah. Movie number 26. Number 26. Letters from Iwo Jima. 2006 film directed by Clint Eastwood. Oh, Letters from Iwo Jima. This was kind of a a two-parter, if I'm not mistaken, right? There's one in in English and one in Japanese. Yeah. Is that is that is this this movie? And it's kind of both sides of the same battle and there's some scenes in common. Yeah. Uh, What's yeah. our take on that? Do we watch both? Do we have are they to both full-length yeah. films? I think they I are. I think they are. They came out with, like within a year of each other or something. Do you want to do one of those uh watch one and then watch the next? Like do you want to red dawn this? I'm I'm kind of down to red dawn it. Let's do it. A two-part, two-part mid-January special, huh? Which one do we watch first? I mean, I, th- I think that they can be watched in either order. I don't think that one, you know, continues the story of the other. I think they're kind of two films about the same series of battles or, or whatever, just told from different different perspectives. I, I say, why don't we do this? Why don't we watch Letters from Iwo Jima and then watch the film that was er- released a little bit earlier, Flags of Our Fathers? Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Well, that will be uh, look for Letters of Iwo Jima in your podcatcher next week. Uh, thanks, guys, for a great year of podcasting. Great year and quite a few more months of podcasting, to be honest. But uh, Yeah, what about that? 52 episodes. Yeah. Uh, feels good to have 52 under our belts, and I'm looking forward to the next 52. A strong 52 minutes of podcasting by me. Adam Pranica. Uh-huh. <laughs> 52 centimeters under your belt. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she said. Yeah. Yuck. With, with that last lame joke that didn't land, <laughs> we'll Adam it. closes out the year. We'll let Rob take it from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. <laughs> Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. This show is edited and produced by me, Rob Schulte. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit MaximumFun.org donate. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Do you feel like joining in the conversation? Well, you can over at Facebook and Reddit. We've got pages there that you can talk to a whole bunch of other fans. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Please use the hashtag FriendlyFire when you tweet. Thanks. We'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.